So, um, and I'm going to throw you a curve right off the beginning. <laughs> You're welcome. I want to read uh, first thir- First Corinthians 13, verses like 1 through 3, and then verse 13. So I apologize for, for the curve. Actually, I'm probably going to have to look it up on my Bible up here right quick. So it's good to see you guys this morning. I mean, I haven't looked up yet, but I'm assuming you are still as beautiful as ever. And uh, so I'm going to, I just want to read right quick, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, and then I'm going to jump to verse 13. It, Paul writes, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. And if I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Verse 13, Paul writes, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. As we read that, you see Paul give us like a laundry list of um, activities, serving, things he does. Miraculous things, powerful things. But he also says that every one of those things, even if they're awesome, are worthless if they're not founded on something. And of course, he defines that something as love, and his word was the Greek word agape, which means unconditional love. But then he goes to the end of the chapter, and he gives us three things. At the verse 13, he says, now there's three things that are going to last forever. Three things that are going to last forever. Your car, your marriage, your German shepherd, no, no, faith, hope, and love. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the things that have to support the things that we do. I want to talk about the things that have to be the foundation of the things that we do. And I'm going to call them attitudes, and I'll explain why in just a second, okay? I just want us to understand, though, that if you're going to do things in life, it went, in fact, the Talos message is new attitudes, but I don't mean it like John Maxwell means it, like Brendan Burchard means it, like any of the famous uh, pop culture positive attitude guys, some of them I really like. I don't mean it like they mean it. Because I, um, to be honest with you, I've, I've known people that had a good attitude that weren't smiling and contagious. Uh, I've known people with a bad attitude that were. And so Christianity is founded deeper than the smile you wear on your face. Christianity is founded deeper than the smile you wear on your face. And so we want to get down to that depth of what is deeper and what's going to found what we do. Now, how many of you realize that when you got saved, that your new life began, started? The old life ended. That's good. But a new life began. Do you understand what new life? When you were born into this world as an infant, how much did you have to learn? But you knew it all by the time you were 13. (laughs) Right? My point is, when you enter into this Christian life, you need to know how to read your Bible, how to think about it, how to think on it. You need to learn how to pray. You need to learn about community. You need to learn about giving. 
Man, if, if people don't give, missions don't get around the world. Jackie and Travis Files and millions, thousands, millions like them don't get out into the world. If Christians don't learn to hold the rope and share the, the income that they earn, even sacrificially, those are things you have to learn. You have to learn baptism, you have to learn about communion, you have to learn about self-discipline, spiritual discipline, God's will, spiritual warfare, consecration, witnessing, repentance, forgiveness, starting over again, renewal. I know you're sitting there going, I might need a few classes. (laughs) And uh, the easy answer for that is you do, all right? But underneath all of that are three things that I'm going to call attitudes. And the reason I'm going to call them attitudes is because of how an attitude is defined. And a dictionary is defined like this. An attitude is a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. John Maxwell defines it this way. Attitude is an inward feeling expressed in an outward behavior. The point is this. Attitude always leaks. Right? Son, I want you to take out the trash. All right. And you might do it, or I might do it. The attitude behind it changes the way it's done, changes everything about it. Some of you in this room have good attitudes, some of you not. You know, on an airplane, I'm not a pilot, I've just read this, so if I'm a little bit off, be nice but they have an attitude indicator on an airplane. So on an airplane, it basically tells you pitch, yaw, if you're inclining, declining, all those kinds of things. But I was thinking it would be so cool. You know where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> it would be so cool. You guys ever seen Iron Man? Kids, you seen Iron Man? Got that big globe in the middle of his chest. Wouldn't it be cool if everybody had one of those, but it was an attitude indicator? <laughs> that would be sweet. We used to have mood rings back in the 70s. Anybody remember mood rings? <laughs> if they made a mood bodysuit, I would send them out as gifts. <laughs> or a hat or sunglasses or something like that. To key people, like, you know. Wouldn't it be cool, though? You know, you're walking down and, and you see Kiki up here who's running sound today. And she's got the globe on. And it's go, oh, it's yellow. She could go either way. <laughs> Better be nice to Kiki. Go to Michael, and he's got the smile on, but his light is red. And you're like, give him some space. <laughs> give him some space. Attitude impacts every part of our lives. It's been called the mind's paintbrush. It colors everything we do. It's the lens through which we look at everything in our lives. But I'm not just talking about positive attitude. I'm not just talking about putting a smile on and plunging through and enduring. I'm talking about a deeper kind of attitude that founds all of that. And that's what Paul's trying to teach us in 1 Corinthians. He is focused on love. But he's letting us know there's two more, faith and hope. Those last forever. And those are faith, hope, and love should be foundational to how we think. They're the attitudes that should color Everything we do, they're the lenses through which we should look at everything that happens in our life. Does that make sense? I wanted to share with you just real quick four principles of attitude that I got from John Maxwell that I just love, so I got to share them. The lens principle is this. People do not see people as they are, but as, or we don't see people as they are, but as we are. I thought that was very instructive. The elevator principle. You can lift people up or you can let them down. 
My dad used to have an ongoing joke. He says, I've got six of my pallbearers picked out. I want to make sure that these guys let me down one last time. <laughs> There's the pain principle. The pain principle is, is this, and oh, it's so true. Hurting people hurt people and are easily hurt by people. That's the pain principle. It's so true. And the last one he shares is the learning principle. And this one I live by. Each person has the potential to teach us something. We can learn something from anyone, even the grumpy ones with their red light on. We can learn something. So how do we do this? How do we found our life on faith, hope, and love? Because I want that because I don't know how your life is, but my life squeezes me. Did your life squeeze you? He puts the pressure on me sometimes. And what I want to happen is I want Jesus to come out. You know why? Because I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. In me is Jesus. I don't want Michael to come out when I'm squeezed. And he does. Sometimes his mother comes out of his mouth. <laughs> when, my life, when I'm squeezed, I want Jesus to come out. And what came out of Jesus? Faith, hope, and love. In the garden of Gethsemane, my Father, not my will, but yours be done. That's faith. That's trusting the will of God. Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He went to the cross because of hope. He knew that there was something better coming. And then as they're nailing to the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's love. So when Jesus was squeezed, and he was squeezed more than any, out of Jesus came faith, hope, and love. And that's what I want to come out of me. And I know that's what you want to come out of you. So today we're going to dig into that. Faith instead of doubt, hope instead of despair, despair and love instead of fear. Ran, uh, Randy, oh my gosh, Travis, it had to happen, it had to happen. Travis did my introduction for me on the third part, okay? His name is Travis, but I've been calling him Randy for years. No one knows why other than it's possible that the night, first night he came to my men's small group that uh, called Mandate years ago, I had just listened to a Randy Travis song. <laughs> I'm gonna love you forever. Remember that one? <laughs> Singing it to my wife. Travis comes in. Randy, how you doing? He did not respond. I kept at it, and now he's Reverend Randy. All right. Amen. Reverend Randy's headed off to Arizona. That which brought another country song to mind, which is strange. Anyway. <laughs> Hebrews 11.1. 1, let's first get into faith instead of doubt. Faith instead of doubt. And let's dive into Hebrews 11.1. 1. The writer of Hebrews tells us, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Verse 6 says... It's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. So faith is the answer to those nine doubts. And everybody has them. They take different forms and different shapes depending on where you are in life. Some of you are younger and you're struggling with, well, maybe you're struggling with the fact, is there a God? You might be struggling with, did he create the world like the Bible says? You might be struggling with the Bible. You might be struggling with all kinds of things in regard to Christian teaching about who God is and if he's in control. Is there a heaven? 
Are my loved ones there? Will I see them again? Why do such horrible things happen in the world? Is God good? Can he be trusted? I think that's probably, as I was working on this sermon, I hear a lot, I talk a lot about the fact that God is good, but I had the realization that often I I believe we wonder if we can actually trust God, meaning will he let us down? Because think about it, everybody in life lets you down. Now, they don't mean to, they don't want to, they're not jerks, they just, I mean, some of them are jerks, but you know, but everybody lets you down. And if you're going to keep a friendship, you have to forgive them when they let you down, right? Because you let them down too. And so everybody lets you down. Is God going to let me down? And we read the Bible, and, and hopefully if you are a Christian, you are getting in the Bible, you're reading it or listening to it or something. As you get in the Bible, the Bible paints the picture of a really strange world. It's probably why most of you don't like to read the Old Testament, because it freaks you out. And it, it should. God's a little freaky. But I'll talk to you about a little bit later how that every page of that Bible is love. But when you read the Bible, it, it's a dark world. It's a world filled with war. It's a world where God's people are constantly under attack and under assault. But in that world, God shows up. And walls fall down and seas split in half and giants fall dead. That's the world of the Bible. And we read that and we go, that's so cool. But I really just need to pay my rent. (laughs) Right? I really just want to stay married. I want my kids not to grow up to be stupid. I mean, uh, I want them to be successful. (laughs) That was the worst moment parents have. Not every moment, just one of those worst moments, you know. And so, is God going to let me down? And so... There's probably several kinds of atheism, but there are two kinds that I think are a problem for us. One is real atheism. People who've just denied that there's a God. Obviously, that's a problem. It's illogical, but nonetheless, it's a problem. But then there's also what I call practical atheism. And what that means is, is practically, we live as if there's no God. We might theologically say there's a God. Yeah, oh yeah, there's a God. But it doesn't impact Monday through Saturday. It only matters on Sunday morning from 10 to 12. And so I think practical atheism is just as dangerous. So how are we going to move from those doubts into faith? The Bible says this through Peter. 2 Peter 1.3, amazing verse. I'm going to read it to you out of the NIV. He says, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. That's a good verse right there. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And if I could add James 1.17, whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens and he never changes or casts a shifting shadow. So I read those verses to you because you have a choice about how you live your life here. One choice is going to lead you into some form of atheism, practical or theological. And one choice is going to lead you into faith. And what's the choice? You either live by earthly experience or you live by heavenly revelation. Does that make sense? The Bible is heavenly revelation. If I take my experiences in life and I 
use them as my lens by which I comprehend and understand the Bible, I'm gonna end up in practical atheism. I may go to church, I may even have a small group, but my faith isn't gonna impact my Monday because I don't really trust God if I use my lens of earthly experience to interpret and comprehend who God is. But if I move and I say, you know what, that can't be right, and I move over to heavenly revelation, and I realize that God's word and God's Holy Spirit, those are the things that are true. And the world in which I live in, it's temporal. It's just something I can see. It's a veil. It's the matrix in which I live. And in that matrix, there's a lot of lies. And so if heavenly revelation is my lens, I never question God's word. And I start to question my experience. And when you start to question your experience, you're close to freedom. You are close to being free. So we move from doubt to faith by doing that, by questioning that earthly experience. And then we also move there by building up our faith. I love this verse out of Jude Chapter 1, verse 20. Jude writes, But you, my dear friends, must build each other up. In your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you need to be built up? Boy, I need it. I need it. Someone came up to me this morning and encouraged me about something I did yesterday. And it just filled my sail. I'm like, oh, I'm not the loser I thought I was. Well, you're still the loser, but you're a loser with a full sail. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Man, what if we took that for, for truth, for what it is, and we really worked at building each other up? What if we did? You know what happened? One, I love encouragement in the body. I love, oh yeah, it used to be called affirmation back in the 90s, but I love it when the body feeds itself heals itself, loves itself. Because isn't that what the body, the human body is designed to do? Isn't it designed to heal itself? Isn't it designed to take care of itself? And that's exactly why Paul uses the metaphor of the body in the church. We are there, we are here for each other, to speak into each other's life, to encourage each other, to see for each other. Boy, I need that. I need, sometimes I get discouraged. What, and, and what happens is my attitude is in decline. And I'm looking at earth instead of heaven. And I began to fail to see the vision that God has for me. And I start to live in doubt instead of faith. Wouldn't it be awesome to be a part of a community where someone could, knew you well enough and loved you well enough that they could see that you were downcast? And they could say, hey, dude, look up. So my dad calls me this morning. And... Um, I'm sorry, I'm gonna break up. It's okay, I'm broken, it's all good. My dad calls me, it's my Sunday morning ritual. Without it, I'm cranky. <clears throat> he calls me up just to check in with mom and him and he asks me how I'm doing, you know. I gave the static, I'm fine. You know what I'm talking about? I'm fine. And he says, and he says this to me every week but I never really noticed it didn't ding with me till today. He says, keep looking up. And I'm going, I think you just made the sermon, Pop. 
He said, I was walking my dog this morning. It's my dad. No, he, I'm sorry, the dog passed away. I was walking this morning. Forgot. Oops. I think he still walks the dog, even though she's gone. He really loved her. Anyway, he's walking down. He says, and I saw this guy on the side of the road, and he had his hand in his pockets, and I think he was waiting on his dog. And he said, I called out to him. I said, sir, keep looking up. He said, I think that guy thought I was crazy. I said, probably, Dad, probably. But it's still good advice. (laughs) Keep looking up. That's what faith does. Faith looks up. Faith keeps its eyes on the heavens, expects God to do. And we need to build that faith with each other. Jude tells us to pray in the Spirit. And Jesus said that. He said, if you're going to worship God the Father, you're going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And in the beginning of Revelation chapter 1, we will meet John, and he's getting ready to get the big revelation that freaked out everybody forever. (laughs) He's, He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And you remember a couple weeks ago I said, you got to pray until you pray? That's what it means to be in the spirit. You gotta pray until you pray. You gotta get close to God, sense his presence, and then things can begin to move. And I love that because prayer peels the veil back and prayer helps us see that God's in control and not ourselves. And that's so good. Let me give you another verse, Matthew 5, 8. I'm gonna give it to you out of two translations. The first one's New Living, and it says, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. And that's a good verse, okay? Purity is the ability of something to be one thing. That's when something's pure, it's just one thing. If it's pure water, it's only H2O. You can't get that here. Uh, but anyway, but in Matthew 5, 8, the Message Bible gives us an interesting application. I wouldn't call this a healthy interpretation, but it's a good application. It says, you are blessed when you get your inside world, your heart and mind put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. That's a good application of being pure in heart. And so when we pray, it moves our heart into a place where we can focus on God. And let me tell you, my friend, if you will focus on God, you will see him. If all you have for him, a barb coming, is spare time, don't expect him to fit your schedule. He's the God of the universe. You're his servant, not the other way around. The other thing I want to say about growing your faith, and this this is going to freak some of you out. But we have illustrations of this in our own body. Take risk. Take risk for God. Take steps of faith. You know what? I think a lot of folks are like, man, God, I would follow you. I would take a larger commitment. I would go more. I'd be involved more. I just want to make sure it's you, God. By the way, you remember that story of Peter and the boat and Jesus on the water? He didn't really know that was Jesus. You remember that in the story? Peter's response to Jesus says, hey, Lord, if that's really you, how about I walk out and see you? Boy, that sounds dumb now, doesn't it? (laughs) Especially when you put a southern twang on it. Add some banjo in there and it doesn't make sense, right? My point is, is that Peter learned the power of Christ over the waves when he stepped out on the waves. And not a moment before. And we need to keep that in mind. The Christian life is always going to be filled with risk. And I just want to encourage you. So many of you are trying to survive. When what you were saved to do was reach for overwhelming victory. That's what you were saved to do. 
There's a story about a U.S. Marine, uh, Chesty Puller. I don't know what rank he was. I'm assuming an officer way up the food chain in the Korean War. In the Korean War, his company is surrounded. There are enemy soldiers in front and to the side. They're surrounded. He says to his men, guys, the enemy's in front of us. They're behind us. They're beside us. And they're on the other side of us. They're not getting away this time. <laughs> Boy, that's how we need to deal with our doubts, our fears, our struggles in life. We need to realize we've got the power within us. Jesus is in us, and we can overcome. So we need to move from doubt to faith. Trust God. Take a step of faith. That's an attitude of faith. It knows that God is good. God is faithful. God is generous and kind. We need to move from hope into, we need to have hope instead of despair. Hebrews chapter 6 gives this awesome verse. It says, this hope is strong and is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Hope. Hope. I don't know if you know this or not, but despair is not a new thing. Been around a while. There are several accounts of absolute despair in the Bible. One of them that I can think of four. In the, in the Old Testament, there was a king named Josiah. And his priest, Hilkiah, found a um, a Bible, for lack of a better, you know, Old Testament script, prophecies. They found it in the temple while they were trying to repair the thing. It had been lost. The word of God had been lost. And they brought it to the king, Josiah, and they read it to him. And as they read it to him, the king was devastated. Realized how far the nation of Israel was from the commands and the covenants of God and the judgment that they were due. And the Bible says that he put on sackcloth and ashes and he repented for the nation. He was in absolute despair because of sin. Hezekiah has a story of despair. He was under assault by an Assyrian warlord. The warlord comes in and basically insults God and says he's going to trash Hezekiah and his entire kingdom. And he writes him a letter. And so Hezekiah, you probably shouldn't write a man of God a letter. He took it before the Lord and spread it out. I love that picture. He spread out the letter before God. And in spreading it out, he said, God, here's what our enemies are saying about you. He was in despair. David, I love David. I identify with David. I think David was bipolar. I don't think I am, but he was nuts. I don't think I am. Psalm 130, verse 1, David says, From the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Write that down for your next bad day. Psalm 130, verse 1. Solomon knew despair. Now that blew my mind. I mean, because if anybody in the Bible could, would have been a great American, it would have been Solomon. I mean, he, com he was completely all about indulgence. Have you heard of the new minimalist lifestyle? Solomon was a maximalist. He's like, live it to the max, man. Do everything you can. He really did. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 20, we find the conclusion of all of Solomon's indulgence and the conclusion, if I might add, to the American way of life. I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Wow. Something. Despair is not new. Josiah needed forgiveness. Hezekiah needed deliverance. David needed encouragement. And Solomon needed a purpose. And despair robs us of all those things. And so, despair is not new. Hope. Now that's new. In Isaiah 9, we learn how that the people in darkness saw a great light. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, we learn that Peter had a vision of Jesus Christ, and that vision compelled him to hope for eternal life. We learn from God's word that there is hope, that there is an anchor that pierces the veil, but the one I really want to take a minute on is what Paul said about us in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. I'm going to jump around, and I think I've got these slides right for you. Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, We now have this light shining in our hearts. We ourselves, we're like fragile clay jars containing great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. Verse 8, We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. I'm going to jump down to verse 14. We know that God, who raised the Lord Jesus, will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. In verse 17, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. I don't know what you're going through, but it won't last. That I know. It won't last. Whatever the trial, whatever you're having to endure, there is hope. We have a hope that pierces through. It's on the other side of the tombstone. It's in the veil of heaven. It's anchored in the holy of holies, the actual one. And you are secure. And no matter what you have to endure, it will not last forever. So what am I supposed to do with that? Well, my friend, stop trying to do it alone. Stop trying to wade through this life, this murky, earthly experience by yourself. I gotta carry all my burdens. Oh, I'm struggling here. Don't do that. Find a friend. Have some faith. Find a faith community and be a part and share the burdens. That's what we're here for. Because, guys, we're on our way somewhere. We aren't from here anymore. I mean, I know you were born here, but you ain't from here. You are going somewhere else. It's nicer there. Better view. Better weather. This isn't going to last. That's why we have hope in Jesus Christ. Attitude knows that God wins. Faith knows that God is good. Attitude knows that God wins. And the last thing I'll point out is we need to have faith instead of doubt, hope instead of despair, and love instead of fear. I already read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. It's the background for this message. I just want to point out four things that Paul teaches us about love and how it should be a part of our life. Faith should be a foundation. Hope should be a foundation. But the greatest thing of all is love. And Paul talks, he starts off in verse 1, and he says, and if I could speak... And he talks about all these languages that he could speak and if he spoke like angels, but he didn't have love. And so, guys, let's take that as our first lesson. We must speak love. What does that mean? What if love was the gatekeeper on your lips? What if love kept us, kept our words? James is not nice to us when he starts talking about our mouth. <laughs> 
You read James 3 and you're like, I need to shut up today. I mean, I need to be quiet today, sorry. And so what if love was the gatekeeper of our mouth? That's what Paul says. It, it, I can say all these great things, but if I don't love, it's just annoying. That's, a, that's what the noisy gong thing was about. And then he, he goes on to talk about if I understood. He says if I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secrets and possessed all knowledge and if I had all this faith but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. We, we really need to learn love. And maybe this should be first. Maybe we should learn love so that we can speak love. If I could use just a, just a little, I'm not trying to do another sermon here, but I guess I'm about to. You know, one of the things that kind of, uh, I don't know how to, I don't know what the right word is. It hurts me as a pastor. And, you know, I, I've, I've done a lot of weddings over the years. Um, I do less and less um, because they're a lot of work and I'm lazy. But, um, no, I'm just kidding. But I do less and less. But I, I'm always, I guess, maybe amazed in the right word, but I have this question. I wonder why people go after the happily ever after until the wedding. And then after the wedding, they don't pursue anything. And I know that may sound harsh, but I tell you, I tell you what, I, you may not know this, but I wasn't always the incredible husband I am today. Amen. Does that carry? Does that back there? Let me tell you what happened in my life, guys. Um, and ladies, you both need to hear this. I encountered a book called Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. And uh, I read the book and I realized I was a broken dude. And then I read another book of his called Waking the Dead and I started to like the guy. Then I found out he wrote a book for women. And I'm like, sweet. I can fix her. <laughs> so I read Captivating. And uh, so I'd already wrote, read Wild at Heart and realized I was broken. I read Captivating. I'm like, I'm going to help my wife out. And as I read the book, I realized my wife really needs me. My wife is under assault by the enemy every day. There's reasons that my wife acts in ways that I don't understand. I almost said crazy, but I, I didn't say that. You're welcome. <laughs> My point is this. There came a time when God awakened me to the reality that I married someone that I love and I need to pursue that love by learning them. Guys, if, if you're going to stay married, learn your partner. Learn each other. Learn your weaknesses. Learn her strengths. Learn, she can learn her weaknesses. She can learn your strengths. You can learn how to be one. Because that's marriage. Marriage isn't two people trying to figure out how to make it work. Marriage is one person living life together. And the older I get, the more I realize that I, on my own, am incomplete. And I need someone to complete me. That's what I mean by learning to love. Learning to understand my partner. It's the same way with God. It's the same way with people. You know, Jackie and Travis are headed to Arizona. And, and they're servants, they love God, they love Jesus, they, they love the church. 
But if you're sitting there wondering, how does someone sell everything and move to another state and, tr- and try and share the gospel? The answer is in Corinthians. Paul says, the love of Christ compels me. And that's what it means to learn to love. And so there are people in our world that need love. And love, man, tough. Love can be gentle, but let it ever be consistent. Let us learn love. And the Bible is love every page. It's every page. Even the pages of judgment are love. And I don't have time to break that down for you, but just study yourself. Even every page, even the ones of judgment are love. The third thing Paul teaches us to do is to believe love. If I had such faith, but I didn't love. Believe love, what does that mean? Well, in John 21, you have this awesome passage. Jesus goes to restore Peter. Now, I think to really understand John 21, you've got to read the rest of John. Because throughout the rest of John, John is teaching the disciples, hey guys, I love you. I'm a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I will lay down my lives for you. I love you first. I seek you out. The whole gospel of John is Jesus' journey of love. So you got basically 20 chapters preceding John 21 that are, Jesus loves me, this I know. And then you get to John 21. Peter had quit. He was done, man. Turned in his resignation, got voted out of the church, whatever. He was done. And Jesus pulls up to the shore, calls Peter in. And he restores him by asking him this question. Peter, do you love me? Now, if you take that question out of context of the gospel of John, you're going to put all the weight of your Christian life on your ability to love Jesus. And that would be incorrect. Because here in his love, not that we love God, that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. And all that, everything about Peter's life was Jesus saying, I love you. I love you, Peter. Even the correction, even the day he called Peter the devil is an I love you. And so now he comes to John 21 to restore Peter. He does it through a simple question. Peter, do you love me? Because if you don't love Jesus, what it means is you're not letting him love you. And if we can learn the love of God for us, oh, you don't know. I don't know. I know every step into his love is amazing and overwhelming. And I know it's just a taste of how much more he loves us. We need to learn love, let God love us, and and lastly, we need to serve love. Paul said, if I give everything, think about that, if I give everything. I had the thought a couple weeks ago, what does it look like when a person has a love that doesn't have a limit? Limitless love. A love that just doesn't know when to stop. A love that doesn't know when to quit, that doesn't pull back. What, what kind of person is that? I mean, besides nuts. Can you imagine it? And as I chewed on the thought, I realized that if I 
was a vehicle of limitless love that the changes it would render in me would recreate me. But the changes it would give to others would also recreate them. Isn't it amazing that God gave us something so powerful that it forever alters the giver and the receiver? That's agape love. That's unconditional love. And that's what we are put on this earth to do, to be like Jesus Christ. Did, did you know that's why you were here? Okay, I'm going to help you out with that. First John 4, verse 16. We know how much God loves us, and we've put our trust in his love. I know if you're sitting there going, I'm tired of this love word. This is making you really nervous right now. And all I know to say is, man up. Let's learn some love. We know how much God loves us, and we put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. But we can face him with confidence because, you ready? Because we live like Jesus here in this world. That's, when I talk about serving love, I'm talking about living like Jesus. If you have a theology of the Bible that locks the life of Jesus in a box that doesn't apply to you anymore, you got a problem. Because we're supposed to live like Jesus. And you're sitting there going, well, what does that look like? And my answer is, read the Gospels. Read his story. Because that's our mission. Our mission is to be Jesus to this world. Our mission is to love without a limit. Our mission is to give this world a love so rich and so profound that to merely give it is overwhelming. We are here to experience that love as giver and receiver. And I'm here to tell you that nothing in this world can overcome that love. No political system, no attack, no assault on our beliefs, no ideology, no culture can uh, overcome this kind of love that we are put here to serve. Three things last forever. Faith. Don't doubt God. Believe. Hope. This isn't all there is. There's so much more coming. There's hope here, but there's more hope later. And love. And it's the greatest of the three. I can't live without all three. I can't have a life of faith without all three, I should say. But love can change the world. The great thing about being a Christian is when you talk about love changing the world, you're coming at it in a truthful, honest, even a legal way. For decades, people have sung about how love changes everything. The problem is they didn't know what love was. They thought love was all feelings and fuzzies. Um, quote me on that, feelings and fuzzies. Love is sacrifice. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not thoughtless. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's forever. Father, I know you love us. And I would ask you to just show us how, how much, but I know it would overwhelm us. But would, 
Would you open our hearts to receive that amazing love? I'll let every person here know their love so, and, and then enjoy it and embrace it. But then, give it. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would build up faith, build up hope, and build up love in this place. I pray that no one would leave here carrying their burden alone. I pray, I do, I ask you, Lord, to give them, what, the courage, the humility, to, to seek someone to pray for them. I mean, it's going to be folks at the table on my right or left that are ready to pray for anything. And even, even stuff that needs to be unspoken that doesn't want to be shared but still needs prayer. I just pray you wouldn't let anybody leave here with a burden intact, but it would be shattered by the power of God's love. Help every life to know they're loved. I wish I could convince people. But Lord, your spirit, it can do so much. And I know you walk among us right now. I know your angels are in attendance. Sure, the enemy's busy, but he's a loser. Lord, help your children to receive your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.